Let's open in prayer. Let's do it like that. We will pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the privilege of uh, gathering together and hearing your word. And I thank you for a church family that, that loves me and my family, and I just pray blessings on their, on their lives. And Lord, I pray that, God, as we hear your word taught, that we would, we would have receptive hearts, that we would hear and receive your word, and that we would submit to the power of the word at work in our life. And God, I pray that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in week four of our Exiled in Hope series. And last week, I preached the first message of a two-part series within the series called Tested by Fire. And last week, we talked about the section in 1 Peter chapter 1, where where Peter is talking about the various kinds of trials that we have in life. And really, what Peter is doing there, he was trying to help frame for us the trials that we walk through. And how should we see them? How should we view them? How should we respond to them? And and a, (coughs) a big takeaway for us last week was that our trials and the sufferings we go through are not meaningless. That God is working in us to perfect us, to make us more like Christ. The test of our faith are there to prove the genuineness of our faith and also to help us to grow into more Christ-likeness. So that was what we looked at last week. There's another section in 1 Peter that really deals with trials, fiery trials and and persecution and suffering, but it's in chapter 4. So we're going to jump all the way ahead from chapter 1 to chapter 4. We're going to look at another lengthy section where Peter deals with the same subject with a little bit of a different twist. We're going to go back to chapter 1 and 2 this next week and and moving forward. But we're going to jump ahead to 1 Peter chapter 4. But to give some context to what we're going to be reading in 1 Peter 4. Again, these are Christians that Peter is writing to that are dispersed. If you remember back the opening verses in 1 Peter, he's writing to Christians that are dispersed all throughout the Roman Empire. And they're dispersed into different sections of the Roman Empire because of persecution for their faith. Because they believe in Christ, they follow Christ, they're under persecution because of their faith. And so this is the context with which Peter is writing. And the emperor of Rome during that time is, is Nero. And if you study history, you study the history of Rome and the, the history of Nero, what did Nero do to Rome? He tried to burn it down. He set it on fire. And history says, I don't know if this is just a, a, a legend or not, but Rome did burn. And whether Nero said it himself or he had someone else said it, he had Rome burn because he wanted to build it again into a different image. But legend says he stood on top of his palace and he played the fiddle while he watched Rome burn. And as a result of that, he began to get a lot of trouble, as you, as you could imagine. And so he needed to find, find a scapegoat. And who did he blame? He blamed the Christians. This would have been around A.D. 64. History tells us that Rome burned in A.D. 64. And 1 Peter was written not long after that, towards the end of A.D. 64 into early A.D. 65, history tells us. So it's not long after Rome burned and Nero blames the Christians. And why did he blame the Christians? Because the Christians preached a message that the world's going to burn one day. That God's going to come and judge the earth. And so, so Nero said, look, these people already believe that the world's going to burn. And so clearly they are just trying to start it themselves and, 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 and prove their misguided faith. And so he, he blamed 
the Christians for it. And so the, the persecution ramped up for the Christians. And this is the context where Peter begins in chapter 4 to talk to them about this reality. So let's read 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter is speaking directly in these verses to Christians who are under fiery trial because of the, the burning of Rome, because they were already under persecution. That's why they were, they were dispersed. But now the persecution is ramping up. And, and, and I want to state the obvious for us in America, in Shriver, Louisiana, in Homa, in Thibodeau, in Rayson, in Berg, wherever you're from. I want to state the obvious, that we are not living in exact same circumstances as these early Christians are. We're not living under physical persecution for our faith. So we cannot compare it apples to apples. But there are Christians around the world who are living under the same type of circumstances that the first century Christians lived under. That same type of of persecution where their physical life is in danger because of their confession of Christ as resurrected and as their Savior. That's not our reality. It could be our reality. We could be moving towards that. Reality, But it is the reality of those Christians, as Christians all around this world that are walked through that type of persecution. But what do we face? Where are we in our culture? How can this admonition from Peter to persecuted Christians who live in a hostile world, what can we learn from that? I believe we live in that similar atmosphere, that anti-Christ atmosphere is the, is the type of atmosphere we live in our world today. Where the world today, the, the, the world, and when I say world, I, I, what, what I'm speaking to is the evil world system that's motivated by Satan that influences beliefs about morality, about right, about wrong, about truth and error. That's what I'm speaking of when I say the world. And we live in the midst of a world that does not wholeheartedly affirm biblical truth. Actually, they stand for many things that are completely opposite of biblical truth. So, so we are in a similar environment, but we just don't have the physical persecution yet. So what can we learn? How should we think about this in the culture that we live in today? What will help us under, uh, understand and respond to hostility for our faith, hostility, ridicule, because we believe in Jesus. We believe he really lived. And he really died. And he really rose. We believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. We believe that, that we believe in male and female. Right? We believe in biblical morality. We believe in a heaven and a hell. 
Right? I mean, I mean, think about this. If I say these things, as I'm saying them, you're thinking, oh my goodness, is this going to go on YouTube? Right now, that used to not, maybe 50 years ago, you could say that and it wouldn't feel controversial. But now it does, doesn't it? Isn't that a shame? So how do we respond? How do we live? So the first thing is this, that Peter gives straight from the text. We should not be surprised when the world is hostile to Christ. We should not be surprised when the world is hostile to Christ. Look back at the text. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's how we respond. And it's often how we respond when we see the world around us that doesn't believe in Christ and pushes back against biblical values. I don't know why we keep getting shocked. Why are we shocked that that happens? We should not be surprised because it, it, it is the message and the, the direction that our country has been in for many, many, many decades. And it's only getting worse as we progress on. So we should not be surprised. Don't think it's strange. So the question is, is why is it that way? Why are people hostile to the gospel message? Why are they hostile to Christ? And really, it's not hostile to us. It's hostile to Christ. Why, why is that? Well, it's because of what the Bible says. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly. That word folly means foolishness. It's foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Meaning for those that are headed to hell, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, that means we were born again and we're being sanctified as we're headed towards heaven. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross to us who are being saved is the power of God. But to those who reject the cross of Christ, who reject the word of God, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. They look, look, there's all kind of conspiracy theories floating around in our world today. And the same way that people look at those conspiracy theories and the people that follow them is the same way they look at Christians. And they say they're fools to believe in a resurrected Christ. They're fools to believe in a heaven and a hell. They're fools to believe in a, in a book, in an ancient book. They're fools. This is why the cross of Christ does something to people. Because here's what the cross of Christ does. The, the, the word of the cross does this. The word of the cross is that Jesus died for sinners and not for good people. That's why the world doesn't like the word of the cross. Because the word of the cross confronts people in their sin. That's what the cross, that's the picture of the cross. The picture of the cross of Christ crucified is that Christ died for sinners, not for good people. The message of, of the world today is that we're all basically good. And that culture is what corrupts us. That's why people do evil things. That's the idea that goes around. People do evil things because a, a, a culture corrupts them. But the Bible says that we are all evil by nature. We're born with a sinful nature, that we are corrupt because of our sinful nature. We sin because we are sinners. And the cross of Christ demonstrates and declares that because you are a sinner, that you need saving. That apart from saving, you are perishing. This is why it's foolish. This is why it's offensive. The word of the cross says to sinners that the cross of Christ was their cross. The cross is a picture of substitution. Jesus took my place because I was a sinner in need of saving. The word of the cross says that humanity stands guilty before God. 
And the word of the cross exposes the darkness and the idolatry of the human heart. The cross exposes the darkness and the idolatry of the human heart. I'm going to make a statement. I wrote it in my notes and I looked at it for a while. I looked at it for a while and I thought of what it would sound like and how you would receive it when I say it. I believe it's true. 100% I believe it's true. And I want you to hear what I'm going to say and then I'm going to explain why I worded it like I worded it. If the message we preach does not offend, it cannot save. If the message we preach does not offend, it cannot save. The word of the cross, the gospel message, how does it offend? It offends our self-righteous pride when it tells us that we're not good enough on our own to save ourselves. That's what it offends in humanity. That's why the world is hostile to Christ. Because the gospel offends their self-righteousness. It offends us in our delusion that we're basically good people who do not need saving. So, so, so what do we do as a church when you're, when, when you're in the middle of a world that's in the, going the, the direction it's going and believing the way that they believe? What do you do when, when the world gets offended at your message? What do you do? Well, well, then if you're the church and you're trying to get people in the building, well, then you, you kind of change the message. You don't, you don't preach substitution. For, for sinners, you don't preach that, that all are guilty before God. What you do is you preach a message that says, really, look, just come to Jesus and receive peace and joy. And look, look at the benefits package. You know, like you go to a, 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 a financial planner and they'll, they'll show you all, all the benefits that you can get by, by investing in, with their organization. Look at all these benefits. That's how, if we're not careful, we preach the gospel. And we don't. We don't really preach the whole gospel. We just say, hey, come and get all these benefits and come to Christ. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want peace and joy and forgiveness and all these benefits? But what we're doing is, if we're not careful, we're, we're trying to ease them through the side door. But we're preaching an impotent gospel. We're preaching a powerless gospel. The only problem is, is that, many, that the many benefits of following Christ... That there are very many benefits, and you're, you're, you can all testify to that, can't you? Those benefits are only available to those who are willing to die to themselves and take up their cross. That's the gospel. The church, we get worried that the world doesn't like us. So sometimes we water down the message, and we preach a powerless gospel. The word will offend. It offends us when it tells us that our deeds are evil. It offends us when it, when it tells us that we're under the judgment of God. Look at John 3. This is after, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right after Jesus said, God loves the world. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That light. Who was the light? Jesus. God incarnate. The light came into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. We, we, we might be tempted to believe that people nowadays are different than Jesus' day. They killed Christ then. We may think, well, people, would, people wouldn't do that to Jesus now. Are you kidding me? 
Man, they would do it for sure. Because man is man. Man is inherently evil. Doesn't they, we don't want our darkness exposed. We don't want to be told that we're wrong. The world hates Christ because they hate the message of repentance and the cross. They don't want to be told that there is sin and unrighteousness. And this is why if we preach Christ, this is why Peter is saying to those Christians, don't be surprised when this comes. It's not you. It's Christ. It's not you. It's the message of the gospel. It's not you that is causing the world to be hostile to you. It is because of Christ. Look what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were of the world, if you you went along with the world system, the world would love you as its own. It would embrace you. Hey, come join me. Come on my side. Yes, we'll sin together. We'll reject God's word and his ways together. We'll high five each other while we're doing it. But because we're not of the world, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, this whole idea of tolerance it's one of the biggest shams there is. It's, it's a big sham because here's the reality. The world is tolerant of the gospel of our message until your message tells them they're wrong. Everyone will be tolerant of your message until your message exposes and confronts something in somebody's life. We should not be surprised when the world is hostile to us because of our message of the cross of Christ. Listen, listen, listen. It's so important. I I don't think we process this as we should. The church in Peter's day experienced this to a degree that we've never experienced it. So i got a question for you. Why would we be any different? Man, when I wrote that statement down, I sat and pushed back in my chair, and I thought, wow, what makes us think? And I think some of it is narcissism in our lives. We think for some reason we'll, we'll be exempt from that. We live in a different age, different time. But I want us to process that. The same gospel message the first church laid down their life for is the same message I'm preaching right now. Why would we think that we would be different than them if we believe in the same resurrected Savior? Why would we think that we would be exempt from any of that? It's really sobering to think about. Our goal is not to be offensive. I I, I want you to hear that. Our goal is not to be offensive. Our goal is to be faithful. Our goal is not to offend people. The gospel does it itself. It's, It's offensive. It's foolishness. It's folly to the world. Our goal is to be faithful. To be faithful. Oh, where are the faithful men and women of God who will hold true, high, the truth of God's word, who will not compromise on biblical convictions? Where are the men and women of God who will do that? Our goal is to be faithful, to preach the whole counsel of God's word. If we are faithful to preach the whole counsel of God's word, the word will do, listen, the word will do the offending, the saving, and the healing. If we will be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God's word, the word will do the offending, the saving, and the healing. Amen. We rejoice. And in, in, in this beautiful what Peter says there to these persecuted Christians, he says, rejoice. 
Because you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. If we are insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says you're blessed. So next time you get ridiculed on Facebook because you put that post out there standing for Christ and you get ridiculed in the comments, you're blessed. In more ways than one. There was no Facebook in, in the Roman Empire back then. I, I bet you the persecution would have ramped up even further back then. We rejoice. We're blessed. Why? Because we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Peter now makes a switch. Okay? He pivots here. He makes a much-needed caveat as he seeks to help persecuted believers. So first of all, he says, don't be shocked. This is obvious. This is the reality of the world around us that you're living in, church. And for us, I'm telling you this, it's obvious that the world, its system, does not like the gospel. It's obvious that whenever we boldly declare what the Bible says about many different subjects, that the world it just says you're, it's foolish, it's evil, it's hate speech. It's, we should not be shocked when that happens. But the next thing Peter says is so important for us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, the next two verses. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. The second thought that helps us here today is that our lives must not contradict our message. We shouldn't be surprised when the world ridicules us and looks down on us because of the message of the cross of Christ. And they call us crazy. They call us Bible thumpers. They call us uh, 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 not loving and hateful. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens because we know if they killed Christ for his message, they will certainly ridicule and persecute us when we stand for Christ. We shouldn't be surprised if we suffer for that. But may we never suffer because our life does not back up our message. May we never suffer because we are compromising in our lifestyle. That's what Peter is saying to the church there. He's saying the fiery trial is here, but don't give the world the fuel they're looking for because you're not living what you preach. It's kind of like this. You guys, you guys heard the, the news that broke with the, the Robin Hood app? Anybody ever? Did you hear that news? Not too often, all the news outlets, Democrat, Republican, were all on the same side for about 30 seconds. AOC and Ted Cruz agreed on something. Wow. Right? They tweeted out agreement. Robin Hood is terrible and bad. Well, what, what, what was bad about that whole situation, right? And, and there's, I'm not going to get into investing, and, and a lot of it is like Greek to me, but the basics is this. Robin Hood is a financial investing app you download on your phone and and do do you two boys here have smartphones okay well when you do get one let's say you get one in a couple years you could invest if you had money right 16 years old you could invest 15 years old if you had money you could download the robin hood app and, and your family your parents could give you money or you could work and get money and invest it's the investing app for the everyday person robin hood what was the story of robin hood robin hood did what he robbed from the Rich to give to the, well, a group of guys, investors, and some social media site got together and said, hey, we're going to flip the script on the hedge fund people. And we're, the little guy's going to win. We do, we're going to do what the hedge fund people have been doing for years and have billions of dollars for. And they did it. And they were, they were successful. And Robin Hood said, time out. We're going to stop it right here. And we're going to protect 
the billionaires. What happened there? Robin Hood contradicted their message. They contradicted their message. Their message was, we're for the little guy. Anybody can get rich in investing. Anybody can do it. Anyone can do it. And then when anyone did it, they said, wait, stop. Stop. Our financial backers, the rich hedge fund people that support us, they don't like this. They put a stop to it. And a bunch of the little guys lost all their money. Look, look. Greed is mixing all of that. I'm not, I'm not saying that all the people, that these little guys, I'm not saying they were all righteous in all their actions. But I'm just making a point here that if, the, if you're saying you are something and you are for something and this is your message but you contradict it, don't be shocked when people hate you. They're, 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 they're calling politicians, they're calling for prosecution, for jail time. People are saying that Robin Hood should be done. We should, dis, we should, get, we should do away with the app. So Christians... If we contradict our message, if we hold high the truth of God's word, and we preach it as true and right, and we preach biblical morality, don't be surprised that the world ridicules you even more if your lifestyle doesn't back up your message. This is what Peter is saying. The quickest way to undermine our message is to be hypocritical in our lifestyle. The quickest way to undermine our message, is to be hypocritical in our lifestyle. The world is watching our lives. They're watching. Even though they don't like us, even though they don't like our message, they're watching our lives and they're waiting to see if we will live what we believe. And it is sad to see in the church, you get prominent figures year after year, month after month, compromising their faith. Even some that have gone on to be with, with the Lord, you see that they live compromised lifestyles. My question today is this, where are the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's of today? Where are the three Hebrew children of the church today? That's what, I'm, that's what I've been asking. That's what I thought about today last week as I, as I was studying this. Where are the Hebrew children in the church today? Do you remember the background of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The children of Israel were in exile, just like the Christians in exile in the Roman Empire. The children of Israel, because of their rebellion against God, were in exile in Babylon. And the Babylonian culture was very similar to our culture. They're living in a world that is completely opposite. They, they worship uh, anything can be God. But the children of Israel worship the one true God. And so here you have Daniel, and then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in the middle of this pagan Babylonian culture that worships sex and money and possessions and power. And they're in the middle of that. And King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 3, he says this. He made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The next section there says, The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down. Worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. I believe we live in similar times. What are you going to worship? Who are you going to bow down to? Are we going to bow down to the Babylonian idols of our culture today? To the pagan idols of our culture? Are we going to compromise our faith? Are we going to stand on biblical truth? Are we going to live what we preach? It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, Peter says. Are we going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Listen to this. Daniel 3, 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king. 
and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if what you said is true, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. My God's bigger than you. That's what he just told the king, the emperor, the ruler. My God's bigger than you. But if not, if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods and worship the golden images that you have set up. We will not bow. Amen? Amen. We got to say the same thing today. We will not bow. We will not worship the false gods of our world today. We will live what we preach. We will not be duplicitous. We will not be double-minded. We will not be unstable like a wave that is tossed to and fro, but we will be single-minded. We will preach the cross of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will hold high biblical values and morality because we know it is good, because God is our creator, has established what is good and right for human flourishing, and we will stand for those truths. We will not compromise. We will not bow. Peter is saying to the exiled Christians in the Roman Empire, the persecution will come because of Christ, but don't let it come because you do bow, because you compromise. Notice verse 17, it says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What, what, what does that mean? Listen, I know that as Christians, we will make mistakes. We will sin. Christians still do sin. It's a process of us being sanctified and continuing to grow in our faith. But we must take the sanctification process serious in our life. We must not minimize sin in the areas of compromise that we're tempted to bow down to in our culture. We must, judgment must begin in the house of God. What does that mean, judgment must begin in the household of God? Look at what Hebrews 4 says about God's word. Here is how judgment begins in the house of God. For the word of God is alive. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It does what? It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So how does judgment begin in the household of God? Every Sunday you're coming here and you're sitting under the word of God. You're allowing the word of God to judge your thoughts, your intentions, your motives, your attitudes. This is how we are sanctified so that we can live sanctified lives in the middle of a hostile culture and stand for truth. We submit to the, to the judging, to the discerning power of the word of God in our life. Now is not the time to be on cruise control. Now is the time to say, Lord, sanctify me more. Let your word come into my heart more, God. I don't want to be the same uh, 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 next week that I was the previous week. I don't want to be the same person. I want to be more mature in my faith. And in the middle of this type of culture is not the time to put the cruise control on. Who in here has a vehicle that has adaptive cruise, cruise control? Do you? I, you should get it. If you don't, go buy a new car. It's really good. I got a new car a few uh, months back, summertime in 2020, and it had adaptive cruise control, and I never use adaptive cruise control. I've always used cruise, a cruise control. You get on the interstate with regular cruise control, and if, if you set the cruise, 
and you don't pay attention, you're going to hit the vehicle behind you, right? You just, you got to use your brake. You can't, you you still got to use your brake. Adaptive cruise control, on the other hand, is you get in on the interstate and you feel like, hey, I want to set my cruise at 70 miles an hour and I'm going to get in the right lane and I'm going to chill. And what will the adaptive cruise control do? You'll be driving and then it'll, it'll break for you. And it keeps you at the distance that you set for the adaptive cruise control. But the only problem is, is you can be 30 minutes down the road and you realize, I've been going 55 miles an hour for the last half hour. That's, and so you realize, I'm not making good time. And this is the same picture that I'm speaking of here. If we're not careful, we in our lives can put adaptive cruise control functions in, in our life. And we just get into the slow lane of our life. And we just we put it on cruise control. And next thing you know, instead of pushing ahead 75 miles per hour on the interstate, we're just adapting to the world around us. And next thing you know, we're going 55 miles an hour in the fast lane. We've lost our edge. One of the greatest temptations we will face in today's world is to cruise along and adapt and blend into the flow of secular culture. We were never meant to be that way as Christians. We're always meant to stand out. You are the light of the world. Do we put a bushel over the light or do we let it shine? We let it shine. We take off the adaptive cruise control. We get into the left lane and, and we, we, we put our foot on the pedal and we pass everyone up and, you, and we say, follow me as I follow Christ. But if we get into the slow lane and we hit that adaptive cruise control, you know what, what we become? We, we become like Samson. We become like Samson. Samson compromised. And when he went to do what he was called to do, he had no strength. Like before, his strength had left him. It's like this, 2 Timothy 3, excuse me, 2, verses 3 through 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is a picture I'm talking about here. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So we cannot be surprised when the world does not live according to biblical truths and then in turn hates us for doing so and for telling them that they must follow as well. We can't be surprised when that happens. And, but also after preaching, we must live what we preach. We must continually let the word of God probe deep into our hearts and judge our thoughts and our intents. But I'm like you. It's easy to become overwhelmed in our world today. It's easy to be discouraged when we look around. We see the culture all around us. We see the compromise. It's easy to be discouraged when we look at the gathering storm of immorality that's all around us. Sometimes it seems easier just to let our guard down and just let go of our resolve and just say, it really doesn't matter now. There's no need to stand for truth. There's no need to shine the light. It's going to go. You know, when our new president got sworn in, he took a Bible, and it was his family Bible. Every time President Biden's been sworn in, he had his family Bible. It was a huge Bible, but it was the Word of God. So what he did when he got inaugurated, he, he placed his left hand on the Bible, and he put his right hand in the air. What are you doing when you're doing that? You put your left hand on the Bible, and you put your right hand in the air. You're making an oath. You're swearing an oath. 
And I want us to think about this just for a moment, about the world in which we live in and and the state of our country. The president of the United States put his left hand on the infallible, inerrant, authoritative revelation of God. The only source of divine revelation. He put his left hand on the word of God. And he put his right hand in the air and he swore that he would uphold the Constitution of the United States. He made an oath based upon the authority of God's word. So think about this. The weight of God's divine revelation was used to add meaning to the position of a man who is using that position to further entrench our nation in immoral and unbiblical pursuits. You see the contradiction? This is our country. This is our nation. And it's easy. It's easy to feel like just so overwhelmed I don't want, I want to get out of the fast lane. I want to just go and adapt and just get in my cruise control lane. But church, that's not our call. And we will not compromise. We will not compromise in this, pul- in, in this pulpit. And we will stand for truth. Even with a compromising president who's okay with the slaughter of babies. Who's okay with immoral behavior of sexual lifestyles. Placing his hand on God's word. But pledging. To contradict it? So what hope does Peter give us in all of this? What hope does the Bible give us concerning where we find ourselves? Well, if I had President Biden's Bible, I wish he was here today. And he could bring his family Bible. I would open up his Bible. I'd open up the President's Bible. And I'd turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. What does it say? 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's the truth of God's word. What do we do? Where's our hope? We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. You know what's powerful about that verse? There's only one time in the entire New Testament where the word creator is used to describe God in the New Testament. It's in that verse. What's the word of God telling us today? The creator of the universe knows you. He sees you. That's what he's telling that first century Christian that's living under the persecution of Nero. He's saying, I'm your creator. I created you. I called you. I'm a God who knows. I'm a God who sees. I see where you're at. And you can entrust your soul into my care. And, we're, and we're, when we're living in a country where the president of the United States places Bible on the holy word of God and makes a pledge to compromise its standards and its truth, we can say, God, we are entrusting our soul to our creator. That word entrust, that word entrust, he says there, entrust their souls, it's a banking term. It's the idea of taking something valuable and putting it in a safety deposit box and entrusting it with the bank for safekeeping. So here's what we need to do here today. The point is this. Who better to trust our lives in the middle of seemingly uncertain times? Who better than the creator of the universe? Personally, politically, the direction of our nation, our concerns, our fears, our diagnosis, our lack of financial support, help, jobs, 
Oil field, all of it, all these things all together. What do we do? What do we do? We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. And so I'm here to tell you today, as I, as, as I, as I conclude this message, it's time for you to make a deposit today. It's time for you to make a deposit. Take all of those worries about our country and about the direction it's going. Take all of those worries about your personal situations and circumstances. It's time for you to make a deposit to the creator of the universe. Take it, put it in his hands and in his safekeeping. He's a lot more trustworthy than your banker. He's a lot more faithful than Capital One and and Chase Bank. He's the creator of the universe. So I don't know what's going to happen in the world all around us. I don't know exactly what's going to unfold. But one thing I do know is that we're going to stand for truth and righteousness. And we're going to trust our God no matter what comes. Amen? Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me today?